Progressive presents an interview with your upstairs neighbor. Hi, I'm Tia. The upstairs-downstairs neighbor dynamic is so special. We have our own language. Like when I scream at my mom on the phone, the people downstairs bang on the ceiling to show their support. The nighttime's the best time to rearrange furniture. I call it midnight feng shui. And if I sleep through my alarm in the morning, they bang on my door to wake me. So thoughtful. Progressive can't save you from your upstairs neighbor, but we can save you money when you bundle renters and auto insurance with us. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is part two of my conversation with Anand Krishnan, author of India's China Challenge, and we talk about a range of subjects, including the Galwan incident, the China-Pakistan nexus, and the Chinese state's treatment of Tibetans and Uyghurs. Do listen in. You, these uh, interviews, uh, these pieces at the end with with different uh, individuals, that's an absolutely fascinating section. And, you know, I, I had no idea that there was this fantastic Sanskrit, um, <laughs> uh, Sanskrit uh, you know, that there were Chinese Sanskrit experts at all. I mean, I'm so sorry. I'm so ignorant. But not at all. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, frankly, I had no clue about this, not just when I moved to China in 2008, but I think mm. even for it took me three, four, five years to even, uh, and I was living in Beijing, so I don't think you should feel bad about that. So it took me <laughs> four, five years to even find out that there was such a huge effort going on in Peking University, uh, mm. the best university in Beijing, uh, in terms of their Sanskrit program, uh, in terms mm. of translating these uh, old palm leaves that they found in Tibet. And I found it really mm. interesting because it's actually something that really goes back pre-communist. Uh, it goes yeah. back to, I think, even the early 20th century. Obviously, there's a mm-hmm. long tradition going back to the 7th century when you had the famous Chinese uh, traveler, scholar, Xuanzang, who we read about yeah. in India as well, who came here and yeah. he these scriptures back to China and translated them. So there is a longer mm-hmm. history to it. But in the early 20th century, uh, I think a lot, a lot of this was revived when you had actually German scholars go to China and set up mm-hmm. institutes there, which were later picked up by some fantastic Chinese scholars who were all educated in Germany, uh, which obviously mm. there's a German-Sanskrit connection. So they were educated in yeah. Germany. They moved back to China in the 30s and 40s and set up these programs, which uh, unbelievably are still continuing today, uh, which, is, mm. uh, which is really quite fascinating. Yeah, it's totally fascinating. And what's, I mean, it's really sad that in India, you know, the home of Sanskrit, we don't even know about this at all, you know. Like so few of us now, people might who read your book might know of this, and you know, but otherwise we are completely ignorant about this. So yeah, and the thing of- that uh, saddened me was I found that many of the Chinese Sanskrit scholars today are going to uh, Austria and Germany to to study Sanskrit and to carry out joint projects and translations rather than coming to India for various reasons. I think predominantly bureaucratic reasons, and I think of course oh. the political reasons as well. Uh, that have mm-hmm. really sort of limited the kind of educational engagement we've had between India and China, which, yeah, obviously this is something that you'd think India and China should be working on together, ideally. Yes. And also this uh, this piece on Wang, Wang Liming, is that how you pronounce her name? Right, Wang Liming, and yeah. In, yeah, and the temple in Chidian, right? So right. That, that was another fantastic bit. I mean, what you know that there are Hindu temples dating back to the 11th century in China. You know, talk <laughs> about that. 
No, absolutely. <laughs> I and again, I frankly uh, did not know that uh, till quite late on in my time in China. Um, I mean, I did have vague ideas of. I was always interested in this as somebody who's a native of Chennai. So I was always, mm-hmm. I was kind of aware of the fact that there were. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a long history of people from South India uh, and the seafaring yes. tradition, and they traveled all over uh, Southeast yes. Asia. And I had yeah. a vague idea that they had uh, reached southeastern China as well because mm-hmm. it was such an important uh, place of maritime commerce, I think, yes. starting in the 11th century and 12th century. So I had a vague idea, mm-hmm. but I thought that this was, I really didn't think that there would actually be a big effort by people in southeastern China to keep up the memory of, of this legacy. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a fantastic museum that I talk about in the city of uh, Chuenzhou. This is all in Fujian province in southeastern China, where mm-hmm. they have sort of kept a lot of relics from these temples. Uh, and they've, they're still, I think this is still an ongoing project, but they have figured out some things that you have these Tamil traders who are fairly prosperous and wealthy. They had mm-hmm. temples built, uh, so clearly they had money to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And the temple designs are also very strikingly exactly uh, you know what you find uh, in Tamil Nadu from a similar time. So it's quite interesting oh. that they had a, commu- a community that lived for possibly even a couple of hundred years um, mm. in southeastern China. And uh, most of these shrines obviously are now only left in relics, though there's one preserving once preserved shrine in a Chinese village that I travel to, which is quite interesting because people in the village have been worshipping this goddess for centuries though they think yeah. that it's a form it's a it's a kind of a manifestation of a bodhisattva even though actually he's a it's very clearly a, a goddess uh, that is modeled on something from south india so it's a, it's a quite an interesting yeah, interesting what is this goddess? because from your explanation you know i just read this little paragraph out every morning residents light incense sticks and offer prayers at the shrine which is perhaps the only one of its kind in all of china the forearm deity has unmistakably Indian features bearing a striking resemblance to those found in the Vishnu and Shiva temples of Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh. She sits upright flanked by two attendants. At her feet is a vanquished demon. The golden deity that the shrine houses is clearly neither Buddhist nor Taoist, but a Hindu goddess. Now this, what, which goddess is it? Because it sounds, I mean, from the <laughs> you know, Durga, some form of Devi. <laughs> it does sound like a yeah. I I would have thought Durga, but why I didn't sort of put it down in papers because I had sent a photo that I took to a couple of Tamil historians, and mm-hmm. uh, the, because it's slightly disfigured uh, given the the history uh, and the fact that it's just been there a lot in this coastal area for so many hundred years and really hasn't been kept up, so it's quite disfigured. So. Uh, mm-hmm. I really couldn't pinpoint exactly what this was, though the general sort of structure of the shrine, uh, they told me it was very similar to what you find in some temples uh, near Madurai, where you have, you know, a vanquished demon lying on the floor uh, mm-hmm. and, and this goddess. With, uh, but, but the facial features were so sort of not clear enough that, that uh, no one could tell me with, you know, with a great de- degree yeah. of certainty. Hmm. Okay, fascinating. Seriously, I mean, I read this bit two, three times. <laughs> wow. Glad to hear that. <laughs> okay. And, um, but now, you know, also this little bit about, 
when we think about the difference between the Indian, Indian, you know, how our trajectory has gone, you know, and you mentioned in one place, uh, basically it's because they invested so much in healthcare and in education early on, right. you know, is why we've managed to like go forward so much. No, absolutely. I think that obviously um, there is uh, multiple reasons that are behind their economic development and the remarkable rise of the Chinese economy uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think that one of the, why I wanted to highlight their investments in education and health is because I think that in India, we broadly focus on the second half of, their, uh, of, the, of the so-called China miracle. We look at uh, mm-hmm. the special economic zones, the big infrastructure uh, developments in highways and ports, uh, and all that that you see. But the mm. point that I wanted to make was where did they get the money for all of that? I think a lot of it, uh, we tend to forget the previous decade, which is when actually the greatest sort of period of poverty elimination happened. And a lot of it started mm. in rural China. So I think the point that some Chinese economists make, I think quite persuasively, is none of these urban-led transformations would have happened without what happened in rural China first. And I think that uh, we tend to forget one half of the picture, but I think we have to look at it holistically. But if you didn't have educated uh, rural workers and poverty elimination in rural areas, you would not have the labor that would have that made the transition that helped China urbanize in the subsequent uh, two decades. So I think that you have to look at the big picture, which is what I just wanted to highlight. And also the fact that a lot of things were bottom up. It wasn't just... Uh, we again have a narrative that uh, because they have a centralized, authoritarian, all-powerful state, that they can develop mm-hmm. faster than we than we can. There is some truth to it, I think, when, if you look at things like land acquisitions. But the other interesting part of the 80s in China is that a lot of reforms and successes happened because of a retreat of authoritarianism, a retreat of the mm-hmm. party state, allowing uh, areas in the south, in two or three provinces in the south, to experiment. I think that the lessons are slightly more complicated than this very neat conventional wisdom that we have, which was what I was trying to portray. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now coming coming to this big thing about you know uh, the border dispute, and you've you've dealt with that in these chapters, and uh, uh, you know talk about the the China Pakistan nexus. You know, talk about that. Yeah, so I think that uh, for sure that the China-Pakistan equation is going to be the biggest diplomatic and military challenge for India in the next two, three decades. Mm. And I do have a chapter that looks at uh, the relationship very closely. And I think the big change is that unlike in the past, obviously it has a long history of a military-military relationship Mm. between China and Pakistan, the supply of of missiles, uh, the nuclear relationship. But what's really changed is the economic stakes. and That's new. Mm. That's only in the last uh, six, maybe not even six years, uh, five, six years after they announced the China-Pakistan economic corridor, Mm. that it's really China has huge stakes in the game right now in terms of the economic exposure. So for better or for worse, I think this China-Pakistan equation isn't going to change. And that obviously has huge implications for the China-India relationship. I think that uh, for the last few years, the Chinese had tried to balance a little bit uh, because of the fact that they were aware of the need to have good relations with India, which is why even on something like Kashmir, uh, contrary to what many of us think in India, actually they were not involving themselves very much until recently. Mm. They were trying to stay out of it. 
they were not really batting for the Pakistanis much at the UN uh, throughout the mm-hmm. 2000s. They were generally saying it's a bilateral thing for India and Pakistan to resolve. But I think if you look at some of the more uh, recent uh, actions, especially following uh, the abrogation of Article 370, it's become yes. I think, quite apparent that their interests with Pakistan have become much more closely aligned. Uh, they are willing to take positions much more openly that say they are siding with Pakistan on these issues. Uh, all yes. of this, I think, coinciding with uh, this very new phase in the China-Pakistan relationship that's here to stay. And I think that's going to be mm. one very big challenge beyond, obviously, the boundary question. I think these mm. two issues are going, in my view, I think they aren't going anywhere. And I think are going to ensure that the India-China relationship remains, I think, quite uh, confrontational, I think, going mm. forward for the next few years, in my view, at least. Mm. The, things don't look uh, like they're going to be, you know, they don't look good basically. And especially after the skirmish at the border, I mean, a skirmish where, you know, I mean, obviously the public was completely, you know, after the clubbing of those soldiers, it's kind of, you know. No, absolutely. I I think that you haven't, we haven't had uh, loss of life and this kind of violence uh, since 1967. So, and that was Mm -hmm. just five years after the 62 war. So the fact that I think that a lot of China's actions on the boundary this summer, uh, which I look at, I finished writing this book uh, in early August. So I had some time to reflect on what happened on June 15th in Galwan Valley. And I think that uh, I have no doubt that the actions that the Chinese military took since early May, trying to redraw the line of actual control, will really have long-term ramifications. And I think they've just started a debate that is still unfolding in Delhi about really reassessing a whole relationship with China, not just on the boundary, but how we do business with them, how we trade with them. Uh, and yes. I think even how also our relations with the US, our relations with other, mm-hmm. uh, for example, the fact it's no accident that we are much more sort of enthusiastic about the Quad now than we were before. So I think that mm-hmm. 2020 mm-hmm. is really potentially could be as significant as 1988, which is when mm-hmm. uh, both sides began normalizing the relationship with Rajiv Gandhi's visit uh, after yes. almost 26 years of, of, of nothing following the 62 war. So I think 2020 can really possibly be the start of a new kind of phase where you're going to see much more sort of confrontation between the two countries and a harder time in keeping this relationship, you know, stable than what we saw uh, over the last, what, 30 years. Hmm. Yes, because th- there was a time, I mean, a couple of years ago, everybody was very pro-China in the sense. I mean, the public view was that, oh, we should be like them. Now it's completely changed in the sense that, you know, it's more fear and disgust, clearly, you know. I think it's so, not just the boundary, but I think it was uh, the COVID-19 pandemic as well, possibly mm-hmm. to some degree, I think, has uh, colored those views. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that... Um, but you're right. I think 2018 and 20, not just the public, but I mean, we had the Indian government invest so much in yes. trying to repair the relationship. These two informal summits, you had Prime Minister Modi going to Wuhan of all places in April 2018, mm-hmm. and you had President yeah. Xi coming to India in October 2019. So I think mm-hmm. there seemed to be a meeting of minds that, listen, we are not going to be the best of friends ever, but mm-hmm. let's not descend into you know open confrontation. Let's try and keep things fixed because both countries have their own problems. The Chinese are preoccupied with the US, the trade war. Mm-hmm. India has mm-hmm. its own domestic issues to deal with. That seemed to be the general meeting of mind. So I 
frankly admit in the book that I did not expect the summer's developments to happen. I thought that both sides had other things on their mind and they didn't want to open a new front. But I mm. something has obviously changed in China's calculus where they have decided mm. that this was a summer where they're going to make these moves on the border regardless of the impact that it would have on the India-China relationship. So I think that they have mm. uh, taken the decision at some stage that, listen, it's okay to uh, you know, be more aggressive and pushing for Chinese interests, even if it means this very carefully nurtured relationship might descend into a very difficult period going forward. And I think that's something that should obviously concern all of us. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'd like to you know keep talking about the Tibetans, about the Uyghurs, and you've you've got really interesting chapters on both uh, you know ethnic ethnicities and you know right. and, and their specific. Uh, uh, problems with the Chinese yeah. state. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, just if I, yeah, I wanted to just say that beyond the bilateral relationship, something that I was really obsessed with in my time in China was the frontiers, because obviously as an Indian, that's something you automatically gravitate to. Uh, and mm-hmm. the frontiers I found to be such fascinating places, especially Tibet and Xinjiang, that I tried to travel as often as I could. Uh, only because mm. of the fact that there were so many historical commonalities, I think, with India's own frontiers. Uh, and mm. the fact that you had really ethnically different people from the Chinese hinterland, with their own history, mm. their own traditions. And the fact that uh, since the PRC was founded in 1949, it's had a mm. continuing uh, struggle in trying to integrate these areas uh, and mm. face resistance uh, from people at various levels in preserving their identities. And I found this whole dynamic to be really fascinating. Though I think mm. that increasingly, unfortunately, it's a very securitization-led approach to both Tibet and Xinjiang. And uh, mm. I do devote a chapter to each of those places in the book. And yes. I, frankly, uh, even though you could see the trend of more securitization uh, in the last 10 years or so, uh, I think that leading to this uh, really, I have no other word, but crazy situation of, of interning close to a million people in, in Xinjiang in, in these uh, yeah. re-education camps. In, the, in this day and age, I think it's something no one expected would be possible. But then yeah. but that's where totally we are. Stalinist, right? Yeah, it's totally Stalinist. I mean, that's what it is. So No, I um, frankly would have, I think that even uh, people in the Chinese government would have told you Five years ago, if you told them this was going to happen, they would have said that this isn't, this is not the China of, of Maoist, you know, this isn't Maoist China anymore. But it's frankly, I think it's a, it's a tragedy that it's come to this, that uh, mm-hmm. and the fact that obviously you don't have many countries that are, because of the fact that China has become so powerful, the world's second largest economy, the biggest trading partner for so many countries, that you have uh, very few people actually speaking out about it, uh, which is, I think, a sad reality of geopolitics today. Hmm. Okay. And on that note, we'll we'll end. Um, So uh, everybody go out and get Anand Krishnan's book. It's absolutely fascinating. It's like really good reading. Uh, India's China Challenge, A Journey Through China's Rise and What It Means for India. And it means a lot, uh, I mean, as you can see from our conversation. So... Uh, thank you so much, Anand, for coming on uh, on the show. Thanks so much, Manjula. Real pleasure to speak with you. And thanks for having me. Okay. Bye. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.